Recovery Elevator, episode 96. And then there's the sign that where we, we start getting into trouble, but it's never our fault. It's always the fault of the cop. It's always the fault of the teacher. It's always the fault of the parent. It's always somebody else's fault. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 27 months and 26 days. On today's podcast, we've got Wynn. All the interviews are special, but this one is extra special. Wynn has been sober for 28 years, and he knows his stuff. In Wynn's interview, he mentions that a relapse is okay, and Wynn is really good at giving up. Giving up those uncontrollable emotions and giving up those things in life that you really can't control. It's a great interview. Tis the season. Christmas is only six days away. If you've still got holiday shopping to do, like myself, then be sure to use the link recoveryelevator.com forward slash Amazon. We get a small percentage from that. So if you find this podcast useful, go ahead and use that link and bookmark that link. Okay, let's get started. Let's talk about cravings and the relationship between alcohol and food. Mother Nature equipped us with a pretty cool device called Hunger. We definitely take this amazing system for granted. For example, with Alzheimer's patients, at times their brain forgets to send a signal to their stomach that says they're hungry. We all know that feeling when our gut pipes up and says, hey, I need a Pop-Tart, some hot tamales, or a kale salad. What do we do? We satiate that need by eating. Now you can only last about 14 days without food. So when our hunger starts chirping, we are craving food. We all know that feeling when our mind or our body starts chirping for a drink. Like I just said, you can only go about 14 days without food, but you can actually go a lifetime without alcohol. The feeling is the same. It's pretty cool with hunger. You feel it. You are hungry. You know your body needs nutrition. However, recognize, is there any physical pain? Oftentimes there isn't. Hunger is just an uncomfortable feeling, oftentimes in the brain, believe it or not, and there's really no physical pain involved. Your gut is an amazing organism. About 80% of serotonin is created in the gut. Hmm. I still find that so fascinating. Now we all know it's a similar feeling when we get that craving. Our brain, our body, something says, I need a drink. Now we tend to decipher that signal similar to the way we decipher the food signals. Well, I need a drink. Okay, I'll have a drink. But think about that for a sec. Are there any physical symptoms that say, hey, I need a drink? And I'm not talking about withdrawal symptoms. Yes, your body does physically need a drink because many of us, including myself, we became physically dependent on alcohol. That's a whole different story. I'm talking about after a long day, you get home. That promise you made to yourself when you woke up that morning that you were not going to drink tonight. But then your mind starts chirping. And that would be your addiction lying to you in your own voice. We often answer that same beckon when it's about food. We simply eat dinner, breakfast, and lunch. And for me, another 2,000 calories in the middle of the night sometimes. I'm trying to work on that one, Recovery Elevator. Give me a break. So in some ways, alcohol and food cravings, they're similar. When my stomach says, hey, I need a casserole. I eat a casserole and I feel a hell of a lot better. However, here's the big difference. When my brain says, hey, I need a sea breeze. I have a sea breeze. I'm not satiated. It's not like when I eat my casserole. I dab the corners of my mouth with a napkin, rub my belly, put the napkin on the table and say, hmm, I need a nap. After one sea breeze, I say, holy shit, I need 50 more. Now for many, it's not that hard to distinguish between a hunger pain and a craving for a drink. However, for the brain, it's hard to differentiate the difference. Our brain senses hunger, and we say, wow, we need to eat, or we're probably not going to be on this planet much longer. 
Unfortunately, the brain, when we get an alcohol craving, it says something similar. But let me tell you some reasons why alcohol cravings and food cravings are totally different. For number one, food will keep you alive. And if you do the food thing well, it'll keep you alive for a long time and you'll feel great. Alcohol, well, it's just straight up poison, ethanol, with a couple additives added to make it palatable. Oh yeah, and if you're listening to this podcast right now, hate to break it to you, there's slim to no chance you can do the alcohol thing well. Teriyaki beef jerky, an authentic taco, and Chicago-style pizza. All that is delicious. That would fall under the umbrella of food. Alcohol in its pure form is basically undrinkable. That's why we mix juniper berries with it, potatoes, limes, agave plants, you get the point. And many times, after all of those ingredients are added, it still tastes like dirt water. Depending on your diet, whether you eat a lot of protein, food can actually give you muscles. Alcohol, on the other hand, it's like that guy on Halloween wearing the Superman costume with all those fake muscles built in. Alcohol, it doesn't give you muscles. Take it from me, I thought it did, I wish it did, but it doesn't and it didn't and it won't in the future. Actually, the cartoons had it right on this one. Popeye eats spinach, he gets muscles. And then look at Barney and the Simpsons. Another difference between the two is everybody needed food from the start. Myself, and probably many that are listening right now, we didn't need alcohol until after we took that first drink. Some of you are finding it difficult to imagine a life without alcohol, and that was me over two years ago. But think back to the 10 plus years that you lived without taking a drink. Now, perhaps the biggest difference between hunger cravings and alcohol cravings is the hunger cravings satiate something. They serve a purpose. After you eat, like I said, oh, you feel great, want to take a nap, or you can go throughout your day. When I drink alcohol, commence dumpster fire. Now, I'm not giving you the green light to start eating everything in a hockey stick's length. And eating 2,000 calories at 2 a.m., Paul, probably needs to stop. Food addiction can be a serious thing. And there's that key word again, addiction. Okay, and like I mentioned before, this is an awesome interview. Get a notepad and pen out, listen and enjoy. Now, let's hear from Wynn. Wynn, how are you? Doing fine, Paul. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. And when, let's get right into this. When was your last drink? July the 22nd, 1988. July 22nd, 2008. Wait, did you say 1988? So you've been sober for quite some time then, right? Right. Wow. How many years is that total? Oh, that's... Uh, 28? Let's see. Yeah, 28. So You got to think about it there. I do have to think about that. You know, it's like, don't ask me how old I am. I have to subtract my birth date from the current date. So. Yeah. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, this is a special interview because, as you know, the probably the average amount of sobriety time I have on this podcast is right around a year and a half. And we're here with Wynn, who's got 28 years of sobriety. And I am personally excited to hear his story, hear the tips, hear his tricks and his experiences and to help me stay sober. And I know you guys are going to get a lot out of this interview. And when, before we get any further, tell listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. Are you married? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun? Okay. Well, myself and another six guys were born and raised in Atlanta. Everybody else moved in. <laughs> What's Georgia Tech? I've got, uh, I'm an engineer. I own engineering companies. I retired about well, 15 years ago. I'm currently married. It's my third time around. I have finally, I think, discovered what the common factor in all of my bad marriages was, me, and <laughs> done something about that. I have a total of five children. My wife has two, so there's seven of seven children between the two of us. 
I have just had my youngest go off to college, which leaves me childless at home for the first time in 35 years. And it's something of a thing to adapt to. I live a wonderful, incredible life that I almost have to pitch myself on a regular basis to believe that I get to live like this. Thank goodness I didn't get justice. <laughs> I, would, I would never have gotten the life that I have. Now, when you say, thank goodness I, didn't, I did not get justice, does that mean if the law had it caught up to you or what's fair in life? Well, yes, I do have to kind of be careful when I, I tell my story because there are some things that the statute of limitations hasn't run out on. And I will tell anybody who is facing this same sort of thing that they're utter absolute idiots when telling their story if they mention things that that's the case. I have been convicted of felonies, been in and out of jails, gone through a whole lot of very bad things. I did a whole lot of very bad things that I got away with. Mm -hmm. So when I speak of not having gotten justice, um, <laughs> I've got a wonderful life now, which I did nothing to deserve. Okay, I got you. Now let's back it up from the start. Now you're 66 years old. Now imagine before 28 years ago, let me ask you a question. When did you start to realize that perhaps you had a problem with alcohol? Oh, probably the first time I drank. The first time I drank, I was 12 years old and it was the most magical, mystical experience of my life. I hear that a lot on this podcast. It was incredible. I think one of the things that distinguishes alcoholics from everyone else is what it does to us. It is not just a normal little buzz. It is something wonderful and magical. And how could I ever have gone through 12 years of my life and nobody told me about this wonderful thing? So that was when I was 12. By the time I was 14, however, I was known as Wino Win, and it was a, a name I well earned. Pinot Noir, Cabernet, well, what was your wine, Win? <laughs> Actually, most of it came out of boxes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Boxes owned by other people. Gotcha. Yeah. Who's yeah. farm days. So. Sure. Sure. And so, uh, you know, my first drink was 13 and the same thing. It was mystical. It was magic. And I started, I continued to chase that feeling forever until about two and a half years ago when I quit drinking. Yeah. Talk to me about your progression after that. Well, I, I came from a really good family. My father was not an alcoholic. My mother was not an alcoholic, but I had aunts and uncles both sides that were. I think it came to me through genetics. I think it's a twist in the DNA that I happened just to hit right. My younger brother also hit it right. One of the reasons why I do what I'm doing now and tell my story and, and, and I'm very active in the program is because... When I first got sober, I went down and found him living in a cardboard box and tried to tell him about this program, and I just couldn't communicate it to him, probably because I didn't have the program myself. I mean, at that point, I was working steps 1 to 12, so I would work step 1, step 2, and step 12. <laughs> um, so I, I, I try to get a little better at, 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 at just laying out the story so that other people can see the path, uh, so that other people can say, Okay, hey, I can relate to that part of this guy's story, but I don't want to go where he went. Now, so you're this your older brother, right? That's my younger brother. Oh, your younger brother. brother. Okay, so yeah. you were sober, and do you mind me asking, is your younger brother part of the program today? No, what happened was, is when I found my younger brother living in the cardboard box down in Florida and explained the program, hey, bro, I found a way out of this mess. And when was this? Uh, this was uh, 1989, so I was probably sober 
six months or so. And, and the miracles were happening to me. It was absolutely incredible. And I laid it out as best I could. And he said he didn't want to change. Well, he did change because a week later he was drunk and he passed out and he fell into a mud puddle and my brother drowned in a mud puddle. Man. Yes. So, no, he did not get this program. I'm sorry to hear that. And, and when this is two consecutive interviews in a row, the woman I interviewed yesterday, Melissa, she lost her sister when her sister was 21. And we've lost a lot to this disease. And we all know that. But, you know, later in the podcast, we're going to focus more on what we've gained in, in sobriety. But listeners, I just want to make this, this clear because we've all lost a lot. And for me, it's, it's a case of I haven't lost this yet. If I do continue drinking, I'm going to lose so much more. And most likely would be my own life. Uh, you know, with suicide, you just, I just can't take the pain. It's pretty, pretty exhausting. Am I right, Wynn? When we get on this particular road, there are signs as we go down the road. There are, there are billboards. And maybe one of the first ones that we run across is that we change our friends. Uh, we don't like them quite as much as we liked the friends before, but these guys drink like we do. And then there's the sign that where we, we start getting into trouble, but it's never our fault. It's always the fault of the cop. It's always the fault of the teacher. It's always the fault of the parent. It's always somebody else's fault. But these are road signs, and it's a common, common thing for all alcoholics to hit these. The trick is, is to understand the road that we're on and not take it to death, not take it to incarceration not take it that far. Say, this is inevitably where this road's going to go, and I don't want to go there. And let me ask you a question with that. So I have you know, someone living in my brain. It's called my addiction, and his name is Gary. And my addiction does a great job of convincing me that I'm not going down a bad road. And you just said, we don't have to go down that road. I can speak from firsthand experience that my addiction is very good at convincing me that I don't have a problem. How do you recommend that we deviate from that path and really start to decipher what our addiction is telling us? Know when the pain happens. We are changed because of the pain. We don't, any of us, get in this program unless we hurt bad enough. None of us are going to give up the most important thing in our lives, which is the addiction. Unless we hurt so badly, we have no other alternates. So the way to recognize those signs on the side of the road is go on ahead and feel the pain. Don't hide from the pain. Crawl into the pain. Say, yeah, I see you. I'm not going to deny you. I understand how screwed up things are right now. And then, of course, the most difficult thing is, is own the, own the problem. Say it's screwed up because of me. Now, what Wynn is talking about here, I talk about this in episode 52 in a value bomb, is the window of opportunity. When those pain points are so strong that your higher power is present or whatnot, that is when you will make the change. And the ism, IAM, alcoholism, incredible short memory, that's a dangerous thing too, right, Wynn? Where you forget your last drink. You forget just how painful uh, it was even a day ago. I've got a great forgetter. At one point in my life, I was making a lot of money, very successful, but I had massive problems. Now, like anybody who has got money and has problems, you recognize that the solution to your problems, go to a shrink, man. Go to a shrink. Let the shrink work it all out. It's got to have something to do with your mama or some kind of stuff. So I went to the shrink for six months, talked to the shrink, and finally said, okay, what's the bottom line? She said, okay, well, let's talk about it. She said, let's talk about what's important. 
I said, well, okay, yeah. She said, your car is important to you. I said, yeah, I really like that little, little Alfa Romeo. She said, how many miles are on your car? I said, oh, about 40,000. She said, tell me exactly how many miles are on your car. I said, I don't know. I'd have to go down to the parking lot and take a look at it. She said, okay. She said, money's important to you. I said, yes, I like money. She said, how much money is in your checking account? I said, well, I don't know exactly because I don't balance my checkbook. However, it's about $1,700. She said, no. She said, tell me exactly how much money is in your checking account. Well, I mean, I don't know exactly. She said, okay. She said, let's talk about alcohol. I said, well, you make a big deal about alcohol, but it's not that big a deal to me. She said, okay, what alcoholic beverages are in your home? I said, I got a little bit of beer, a little bit of booze. She said, no. She said, tell me exactly. I said, okay, I got some paps and I've got some bud and I've got some vodka and I've got some brandy or something. She said, no. She said, tell me exactly. I said, I have three Budweiser's on the door of the refrigerator and a six pack of paps, which is sitting on the bottom shelf in the cabinet above the refrigerator. There's a bottle of Christian brothers brandy, which is half full. There's a bottle of hundred proof Smirnoff's, which has three fingers still on the bottom of that bottle. There is a bottle of famous grouse scotch that I haven't cracked open yet. And there was nothing in my life. I kept track of the way I kept track of alcohol. Listeners, I want you guys to do that exercise in your head right now. If you're sober, awesome. If you're not, think about it at home right now. Because when you did that, I was thinking back at the time where, yeah, I would wake up in the morning and be like, okay, I have 3.728 ounces of vodka. That's going to get me to this day. That's incredible. I love that, that, that story. That's incredible. Yeah, and we, you're right. We, we keep track of how much we have exactly and everything. And we know, and we know. Now, the really, the really bad part about that story is that, okay, I could work the first half of the first step, let's say. Let's say I could, I could admit to myself, I'm powerless over alcohol. This is the most important thing in my life, and I have no power over it. But you see, I was still driving Alfa Romeo at that time and had a wonderful house and a wonderful job, and I thought my life was manageable. So after that, I continued to drink for another 10 years. 10 years. And so just the knowledge that I'm powerless over alcohol is not enough. I have got to be able to work the first step in its entirety. I have to be able to say that my life is unmanageable. And that took me a long time. And when before we get to the solution, when the rubber hit the road for you, I'm just going to straight up ask you, when was your bottom? I reached my bottom six months before my sobriety date. I had, in fact, I identify with Bill W. so ferociously and all of these things about alcoholic dreams of great wealth and all this sort of thing. And, and I understand that so much. And I had all of those. And I bought a mountain and I, on the north side of Atlanta and was putting a huge dream house on the top of this mountain. And some things went sideways, and uh, I didn't have enough money. So what I did was go back to some fellows who I had been in business with in previous years and who were not the most savory of characters uh, and got the money from them. The, the conversation on, when I picked up the money was, well, when we know you're good for it, but you know there's no notes. There's no deed to secure debt here. 
if, if something should happen to you, God forbid, it's not like we can go to your, your widow and say, when owes us this money? They said, just to relieve us of that worry, would you sign this life insurance policy? Now, I didn't know who the beneficiary was, but I signed the life insurance policy. And I picked up a brown paper grocery sack full of money and walked out of there and then went back to the trailer I was living in on the top of this mountain while I was trying to build the house, set the paper sack down with the money in it, went and got a bottle of scotch, set it right down next to the paper sack, and realized that if I picked up the bottle of scotch and drank out of it, that the paper sack was my coffin and I would die because these boys would kill me and get the insurance policy and they would come out okay uh, and I would be gone. And that was my moment of truth. I got a big book. I never went to a meeting. I read the big book cover to cover and it was incredible. It was the first time in my life I was convinced that there were people out there just like me. I had a case of terminal uniqueness and the big book solved that particular case. But I believed it. I believed it completely and totally. And then I got the house done. I got the mortgage on the house. I got it in cash. I carried a brown paper grocery sack back to that boy again. I got a life insurance policy from him and tore it up. Everything was fine. I had a housewarming party and I said, I can have a beer. I'll have just one beer. Oh, and of course, sounds you like your addiction was, was chirping and in your brain. That's exactly. See that great forgetter. And I knew, I, I believed the book. I believed the book. I believed that I couldn't do that. But I thought my disease told me I could. But I found out, of course, I couldn't. And that's my sobriety date. So I had six months before that that I was sober and got everything straightened out. And the miracle happened. So what but happened then, after you drank just that one beer? That's right. Just And I kept on going. Oh. I kept on going. Oh, and okay. I kept on going. And I kept on going. And then in the morning, in the morning, I realized... My God, Bill was right. This big book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells the truth. I am powerless over alcohol, period, absolutely. My life is unmanageable. So what happened after that? You realized your life is unmanageable. Step one, check two through 12. There's a lot of work to be done there. What did you do after that? What I did then was get in the program, got involved in the program. I got a home group and I went to meetings and I talked the talk. But I didn't walk the walk because, see, I never got a sponsor. But I could sit and I could talk. Oh, my goodness gracious. I knew the big book and I could quote it. And then three years later, my higher power said, well, it looks like we need to whip a little bit more pain and agony on this boy. Teach him that he really does need to change. And so that's what happened. So I lost the mountain. I lost the house. I lost the wife. I lost the family. I lost the companies. I lost the money. I lost fancy cars. I lost everything, and I'm moaning and groaning about this in a meeting when one of the old-timers walked up to me, and he did not ask a question, do you have a sponsor? He made a statement, you do not have a sponsor, and you need to work the steps. And I said, yes, Jim, you're right. So three years into the program, I finally started to work the steps, and it was because the pain got bad enough. I was willing to do it. 
when this is something that I've realized in meetings, it's, it's pretty easy to determine who has a sponsor and doesn't because when they share, the people who don't have a sponsor, they share, oh, today on the road, this person cut me off, this and this. And the people that do have a sponsor, they share the solution. And you mentioned something earlier called terminal uniqueness. I'm talking to you and you and you and you and you out there listening right now. They're saying, wait, when 66 years old, he's been sober for 28 years, he bought a mountain. I, I've never done any of that stuff. I'm not like when, oh yeah, that AA thing. That's not for me. Not happening. Talk to me about terminal uniqueness and how dangerous that can be. Well, going through life. And of course my story is very involved before I got to the point where I could buy a mountain. I went through Georgia tech got kicked out four times, finally ended out with a degree, not because I'd earned a degree, but because they finally got tired of me being there. So they gave me a degree just to get me out the door. I was such a chronic alcoholic and drug addict at this particular time, I was unemployable. So I rambled for the next five years all over the country, believing there was nobody else in the world like me, and whenever I ran across a problem in one particular city, my solution was always the geographical cure. I went somewhere else. This continued till I was coming into Las Vegas one time. I'd been drinking beer, so I needed to make a pit stop. Standing in front of the urinal, and God had had somebody put right in front of my nose the words, no matter where you go, there you are. And that hit me. I suddenly understood why, no matter where I went, the problems just occurred all over again. It took six months, but then it was still all of the same problems, and I had to leave that place. And that was my story for years before I ever came back to Atlanta to settle down. I was a great believer in a geographical cure. When I can, I can relate to geographical cure, went to Spain, came back, went to Washington, Montana, check, 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 done it all. Uh, and, and that's also what you said with the urinal thing. That's why the man in the mirror poem to me is so special because it doesn't, it doesn't matter where I went and those geographical cures. Every time I looked in the mirror, God, I still saw myself. And there was about a decade where it was difficult to look myself in the mirror. And oftentimes when, when the steam and the fog would, would fog up the shower mirror, I purposely wouldn't wipe it so I couldn't see myself in the mirror and and thankfully today, Wayne, it's, it's a different experience when, when I look at myself in the mirror. I like who I see. I can talk to myself. I can be kind to myself. And, and Buddy mentioned uh, about you, the person who introduced me to you, that you're carefree. And that's something that I'm struggling with with a little over two years of sobriety is I'm still trying to control a lot of things, Wynn. <laughs> what do you got for me? Okay. Carefree is really, really easy. If you had a terrible time with a third step like I did, what? we all finally have to admit is I'm not willing to give up my will. I am not trustworthy enough to believe that somebody else is going to take care of me. I cannot say, okay, God, you run this whole thing. That was my stumbling block for those three years where I couldn't work the program. I couldn't get a sponsor. What finally happened was I got into enough pain so I could say, if I'm running this show, I'm doing such a terrible job of it. Nobody else could do it as badly as I'm doing it. I have utterly nothing to lose. I think I will work the third step. I will turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand it. That's the secret to having a carefree existence. Every day, every minute, 
God sets up just like my own little personal miracle. It's right here for me. Thank you so much for God, for everything he does. So the only thing I have to do is believe that everything that happens is exactly as it's supposed to happen. That all I need to do is pay attention. And I just pay attention and pick up the things that he sits in front of me. Listeners, a value bomb with a huge asterisk next to it. That is the key right there. I just wrote it down. Turn my will over to my higher power, which sometimes can be a pine tree, a rock, or a turtle. That's awesome. I, I put that in my pocket, fold it up, and I'm good to go. Next question. Wait a second, Wynn. My problems are still agonizing me. <laughs> it, can't, it can't be the key. That is the key, but uh, there's got to be a little bit of work involved. It can't be that easy. Okay. The problems don't go away. I can turn my will and my, my life over to the care of God as I understand him, and I can still have the committee meeting inside of my head, and it's going and going and going and driving me utterly, absolutely nuts, which is why we have the rest of the steps. The reason the committee's meeting is because I have character defects. Generally, the committee's meeting in regard to a resentment that I've got and the resentment says that somebody somewhere isn't doing what I think that they should be doing. And the resentment brings up the committee, and the committee works out all these wonderful things we're going to do to this person because they're doing it wrong. Through the fourth step, I find out that the problem with my misery is me, and that if I want my misery to go away, I'll need to find out the aspects of my character that are making me so miserable. Those four-step things. Things like fear. Things like control. Things like domination. These things can, can just run my life so that everybody I run across doesn't fit within the framework that I have in mind. What I'm doing when I do that is playing God. So I'm not turning my will and my life over to the care of God. I'm pretending as if I am God, and I want the righteous sword of justice to wreak havoc upon these people who cut me off in traffic or whatever else. Listeners, I know a lot of you guys out there, when you hear the word God, you shut down. Do yourself a favor and just replace God with a garden hose or anything, a carrot, because you can't do this alone. I'm going to tell you that right now with 100% certainty. And, you know, there are other tools that you're talking about is I'm reading The Untethered Soul. I forget the author right now, but it's the Recovery Elevator Book Club of the Month. And it's I'm, I'm 30 pages in and gosh, it seems like every other line is highlighted because it's talking about the committee, just like you said, and realizing that I am not the committee and really just separating myself from that and letting those thoughts go by without acting on them. But like you just said before, it's the fourth step. And, and again, you don't have to work an official fourth step with a sponsor. I would highly recommend it, but really that step allows you to, to look when I, when I read my entire fourth step to my sponsor, I did what you said you did earlier. I was like, Holy shit, I'm the problem. Yeah. I, 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 I am the reason why all this negative turmoil is happening. Yes. And, and going back to the higher power God thing, we're so fortunate to be in a program where we can roll our own God. We recognize that our God is so big and loves us so much that he is willing to be anything we need him to be because he just wants to tie with us. He wants to connect with us. He wants to show us a better way of living. He will be whatever we need him to be. Now, one of my favorite pieces of advice I've heard during this podcast is you got to go through it 
to get to it. Um, I have always looked for shortcuts. I look for pills. I look for new therapists to talk to. But comment on that where we really just need to feel these emotions to get to it. it it's a trick to give my will over to God. It's a trick to look at the things that are in me that are causing me problems. It's a trick to be willing to give up the character defects. The sixth step is the step I have the most trouble with. My character defects are my survival mechanisms. These are the things that I believe that I have to have to survive. I have to have greed. I have to have pride. I have to have a controlling instinct. These things I think I have to have to survive. What eventually I came to was the same thing that's laid out in the 12 and 12. Our character defects aren't things which are inherently evil in and of themselves. They're excesses. So that within our character, we do the same thing that we did with alcohol and drugs. We don't stop. We want too much. We want it just to keep on going, to keep on going. We demand too much from it. So we want too much money. We want too much social recognition. We want too much sex. We want too much of all of these things. And it's in the excesses that the character defects lie. Now, studies show that once a person reaches two years of sobriety, their chances of staying sober for a long period of time are greatly increased. Now, with 28 years of sobriety, have you ever had a close call? Yes. <laughs> and the second part of that question, you know, tell me about that close call, but then what are your thoughts on relapse? But hey, tell me okay. about your close call first. Okay, I will. I was with a huge corporation. I was down at the Lauderdale office. I had made some enemies in the corporation, and they fired me one day, all of a sudden down there, and I went back to the airport and tried to get back up to Atlanta, and there were no openings in any of the flights. It was spring vacation, and I could not get out. And the guy in the crown room who was trying to set up all the flights, he and I were talking about everything else. And we happened to start talking about single malt scotches, which was one of the things that I really loved. And he at one point suddenly put together a seat and handed me a ticket and reached underneath the counter and pulled out a single malt scotch and poured me the scotch in a shot glass and handed me the ticket with one hand and the shot of single malt scotch with the other hand. And I started to reach out with two hands. And something said, bring back one of those hands. It wasn't me. It was God. It was my higher power. It was not me. And I took the ticket and I told him, I'm sorry. I may want that single malt scotch very badly, but I'm not going to have it. And what are your thoughts on relapse? Relapse. It's where we naturally go. Relapse is our disease just kicking back in again. The only way to prevent a relapse that I'm aware of is to get the first step down absolutely perfectly, is to understand completely and totally that I am powerless over alcohol, and then to understand completely and totally that my life is unmanageable. If I can accept and if I'm honest about those two things, I cannot relapse. If I have any doubt about my powerlessness over alcohol, 
if I have any doubt about my manageability of my life, I will relapse. And when I would be, it would be imprudent of me to say that I'm the only one in sobriety that has faced challenges, turmoil, because life happens and it doesn't happen to me. But when it does, I have the first step down to a T because when I face adversity in life, the drink, to me, it's like asking myself, okay, well, I'm on the side of the road with a flat tire. Will putting my hand in lava make this better? And the answer is no. And it's that easy with me for, for a drink. I go, man, I want to drink right now. Then instantly I think like, oh, okay, this is just like amputating my arm. Like this is not going to do anything to help the situation. And before I used to obsess with the idea that, you know, I could flirt with, with a drink, you know. But in the reality, one drink is too many and a thousand is not enough. And when we have reached the rapid fire round, if you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Shoot. <laughs> Shoot. I love it. Number one win. Oh, what's your worst memory from drinking? Jail. I absolutely detest sleeping on painted stone floors. I thought you said kale, the, uh, the unsavory green plant, but jail. Yep. I've been there before too. Not fun <laughs> at all. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. Did you ever have an oh crap moment when you realized that you couldn't control your drinking? Yes. Many, many times. Generally when I woke up in hospitals or jails. Now you got 28 years of sobriety win, but I've heard worse of people with longer sobriety than you going out. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? When I first got in the program, one of the old timers went out and he had 30 years and it really, really upset me. And I went back to him and I said, what happened, Bill? What happened? He said, I stopped doing the 10th step. So what I do is do the 10th step. Whenever I lie, whenever I screw up, whenever I mess up, I never cover it up. I say I lied. What I just told you was a lie. I've just screwed this thing up. It's messed up. Here's what it is. I do a 10th step. Life hack, take responsibility for your actions. And next question, when? what's your favorite resource in recovery? And I've heard you were, use the word program many times. And if that's it, g drill down a little deeper into the program. Um, and again, you just said 10 step, but something a little deeper or something different than the program. Yeah. My sponsees. I have children that are doctors and lawyers and immensely successful. And of course, I'm proud of them. But there's nothing I have that's like the joy in my life of the sponsee who stays sober and who has a wonderful life and who has a great existence and who picks this whole thing up and helps other people and carries the magic on and more and more people get sober. That is the wonderful thing in my existence. Wow. Being of service right there. And in regards to sobriety, when was the best advice you've ever received? When I went broke one time, I went to my uncle, who is the proverbial rich uncle, a billionaire, and I went to him and I described my tale of woe. And he said, when? He said, sounds like you're down in a hole. I said, yes, sir, Uncle Tom, I am down in a hole. He said, do you know what you do when you're down in a hole? I said, no, sir, Uncle Tom, what do I do? He said, you stop digging. Oh, I love it. I knew it was coming. Put down the shovel. Ah, that's incredible. I love it. And before we depart, what parting piece of guidance can you give to somebody who's thinking about quitting drinking or they're in early sobriety with, I don't know, maybe two years, two months of sobriety? 
it's okay if you relapse. It's okay. Whatever happens is what's supposed to happen. Take life as it occurs to you. If you don't do everything exactly the way that you want to do it, don't worry about it. Your pain will get to be enough so that you will stop eventually if you just accept what's happening as what's supposed to be happening. And I've almost forgot before we depart, when give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line. Now, this is similar to the Jeff Fox where you might be a redneck if you have nine carburetors in your front yard. Yeah, give listeners, uh, you know, for example, I, I, I knew I'm an alcoholic when I would go to the liquor store and, and fabricate an entire dinner party to the clerk. <laughs> well, I think my mindset previous story that I told you that the shrink led me to. You might be an alcoholic is of all the things that you know and love in life, you know more about your content and your and your and your quality and quantity of alcohol than anything else. When this was a truly remarkable interview, I enjoy all the interviews that I do, but this one is special. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored, but good to be here. Before we get any further, let's hear from Cafe Re. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Speaking of Cafe RE, I'd like to give a shout out to Brandy out in California who just hit one year. Brandy's been with Cafe for maybe over a year, and it's been amazing to see her progress. It's inspirational. Nice job, Brandy. About three weeks ago, I went to a convention in Florida. It was kind of a lonely trip, Recovery Elevator. One of the nights, I was eating by myself at a Chinese buffet. Next door was a bowling alley that had some sort of corporate party going on. I could hear the bass of the music pumping, the laughter. Hell, everybody looked like they were having a blast. For some reason, I wanted a drink right then. It wasn't a close call, but I kind of wanted a drink. I wasn't so much desiring the taste or the ability to feel in a different state of mind. I kind of went back to the days where it was fun to just go out and party. Now I'm sharing this with you because I've been sober for over two years. These thoughts, they're normal. And if I were not to do the Recovery Elevator podcast or continue to connect with my recovery portfolio, these thoughts would probably, nope, they definitely would get the best of me. I've learned that and lived that firsthand too many times. When I woke up the next morning, the feeling didn't go away. I was a little worried, and I'm in the airport line going through security, zigzagging back and forth, and every time around the turnstile, I just got a whiff of weed, and what was that? Yeah, booze. It was strong, prevalent, no doubting what that smell was. I'm thinking to myself, damn, sucks to be the guys sitting next to those jackasses on the airplane. Well, thank you, higher power, I'm 26A, and guess who's 26B and C? Yep, those guys. I'm actually serious when I say thank you, higher power, because you've heard me say it several times on this podcast. One of the worst parts about not drinking is dealing with drunk people. It's actually very encouraging to see people in the beautiful state of alcohol and drunkenness because it affirms to myself, you say, wow, I am making the right choice. 
because 26A would have been just like 26B and C had I been drinking. Now, I said commence dumpster fire earlier in this podcast episode. That's about what happened around 35,000 feet. We all know how close airplane seats are. You got three adults sitting within like three and a half feet. But for some reason, 26B, when communicating with 26C, spoke at a decibel level that probably the pilot could still hear. My headphones were on full blast, and after an F-bomb, I actually took them off and said, Hey guys, just to let you know, there's a bunch of kids around here. Is that cool? Maybe we pipe down a little bit. And it was a casual conversation. I got to know their names, talked a little bit, and I said, Okay, all right, have a great flight. Put my headphones back on blast. They can only go so loud. About two hours into the flight, get up, go to the restroom, and tell the flight attendant, and say, Hey, look, I understand you guys have already cut these people off, but you guys got to do something. They put me in a different seat. 25 minutes later, I'm filling out a witness report, and the first people I see when the airplane doors open are, yes, police officers. I felt bad for these guys. They're going to vacation to Colorado to smoke all the weed in the world, is what one of them said. Well, actually, my ride was waiting for me at the curb of the airport. Their ride was waiting for them at the gate. So I guess they win. I'm just kidding. That ride was a police car. Yeah, I actually felt really bad for these guys. I have empathy for them because I've been there before. But actually, I can tell you with 100% certainty, I have not been a jackass like those guys on the airplane before, but I've been drunk on many airplanes. There was a time when I was flying to Spain. I woke up on the airplane and was like, gosh, darn it, we haven't even hit Ireland yet. That's where my stopover was. About 20 minutes later, the captain gets on the microphone and says, ladies and gentlemen, we are beginning our descent to Malaga, Spain. I was like, holy shit. I was blacked out for my two-hour layover in Dublin. And my passport was a piece of paper stapled that says, get this guy to gate 4C. Yikes. I'm sorry, airport Dublin staff. And in 2005, after mixing red wine and Ambien, I threw up on myself on the back row of the airplane. Thank you, flight attendant on Lufthansa, for dealing with me and helping me out. I'm so sorry. But this is a really cool experience I wanted to share with you, Recovery Elevator. Of course, when I sat on 26A and 26B and C arrived, I was like, come on, you have got to be kidding me right now. But my HP, consider it divine or whatnot, placed those two next to me to affirm that I was making the right decision. We've had a lot of interest for the retreat starting August 24th to August 27th the next year in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, up in the wilderness. Registration opens 1-1-2017. Get your year started off right. Register for this retreat. It's going to be an amazing time. What are we going to do on this retreat? Well, we're going to do outdoor stuff, probably a ropes course, possibly mountain climbing, maybe even a zip line. Most importantly, we're going to connect with other like-minded individuals. We are going to learn tools to be successful in our goal for sobriety. Christmas is only six days away. Remind yourself what the point of this beautiful holiday is. Is it about a nativity scene, a manger, the first Noel? Possibly. But I'm talking about being in the giving spirit, being of service. I'm talking the talk, and I'm walking the walk as well. Starting about a week ago, I wrote a Christmas card every single day of gratitude to somebody that I really haven't connected with in a long time. I write this card about 15 minutes after I wake up in the morning. It's crazy how good I feel when I tell somebody on pen and paper how thankful I am to have them in my life. Oh yeah, you know, at the end of the card, I'm like, P.S., I want a Red Rider BB gun for Christmas, and this is where you can buy it. But again, it's all about giving, being of service. So, recovery elevator, we took the elevator down, we gotta take the stairs back up. We can do this. <laughs>